Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm honored to be joined by Henry Price, the current and 31st headmaster of Oakham School, my former school. Oakham School is a British co-educational independent school situated in the market town of Oakham in Rutland, which is the smallest county in the UK with a school role of around a thousand pupils aged from 10 to 18. Henry will be discussing his inspiring journey to achieving his second headship, now with Oakham, while sharing his views on the value of a 21st century education. We'll be discussing a wide range of topics, ranging from the various governmental pressures on schools, and of course, touching on some of the interesting considerations related to the modern day COVID-19 education sector. So, a very big welcome, Henry. Thank you very much, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope my story is inspiring. That might be a difficult word to live up to, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Well, before we go through all of that, we do have a customary icebreaker question on the Legally Speaking podcast, which we ask to all of our guests. So, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the reality hit TV series Suits? And as a non-lawyer, Feel free to give an educated guess if you see what I did there. Well, I've never seen people look so smart. Office politics must be some reality there. Some of the cases must be based on a sort of real basis. How anyone can ever be that slick and cool for that long, I really can't believe. I'm going to go for a solid 7 out of 10. There we go. A solid seven. So that's a fair rating. But we will move forwards because we must talk, as we always like to with all of our guests, at the beginning. So I think you have an inspiring story. So tell us a bit about your background and and life before Oakham School. I consider myself extremely privileged, Rob, and that might be a word that we come back to later on in the podcast. Uh, This is my second year at Oakham School, an outstanding co-educational independent school. Prior to that, I'd done five years as headmaster of Wellington School in Somerset, another wonderful school. I've had 13 years at rugby as a housemaster, as a classics teacher, and a few other things. I started at Sherborne in Dorset. I had two years in Sydney, and I've been extremely fortunate in the education I've had. I'm a father of four, a daughter and three boys. I've got a fantastic wife, and you know, I consider myself extremely lucky. And I do think that good fortune also plays a a real part in our journeys through life. And and I'm thankful for the good fortune I've had. Brilliant. And thanks so much for sharing that. And let's sort of dig a bit deeper then in terms of independent schooling. What do you believe is the value of independent schooling in the 21st century? I think it's a really good question because I think there's different perspectives to that value. So, of course, As head, I'm thinking about prospective parents and current parents and the value I try to bring. And I think, although it's a much overused word, I think holistic is very important still in education. And we've got to think that education lies both within the classroom and outside of it. I think the co-curriculum brings real value, is a place where young boys and girls have experiences where they test themselves, they make friendships. I think those important soft skills that go on into the workplace, we talk about teamwork, we talk about individuality and taking risks and putting themselves in new scenarios. And I think the independent sector does those things really well. And that's 
you know, outdoor education. We've just had a fantastic service weekend here at Oakham with boys and girls, even during COVID, out and about doing DOV and more sport, the music, the drama, debating, all the clubs, everything we do that pushes boys and girls to find things that really inspire them, to take them, to bring them new skills, I think is hugely valuable. For me still, I think all schools think carefully about individual pupils. And I think schools like Oakham, we care deeply about pastoral care, about how we're bringing up young boys and girls, not just what they're learning, but the values and the ethos that they're learning, that we support them through difficult times, through bumps in the road. Um, but often it's just a case of, of wise adults nudging teenagers, nudging them back on path or nudging them towards something that they might otherwise be reluctant to do. I mean, I could go on about this for ages, Rob. You know, the value of the sector, I think, is a different question, which is I believe that independent education is a huge part of the educational DNA of the UK. And we know that the education DNA of the UK has great global value and great global respect. And I think independent schools such as Oakham and hundreds of other great schools like us have provided innovation and ideas and partnership, as well as producing some really fantastic boys and girls who go on to do great things in life and go on to make a difference. I'll stop talking. <laughs> really well said, Henry. And just to pick out there, you mentioned sort of through difficult times. So we do have to talk about the unfortunate situation we're living through at the moment with regards to COVID-19. How has that affected schools? Has it created numerous sort of health and safety issues? Just give us a bit of an insight into that. Well, it's had a massive effect. So if we turn the clock back, closing a school back in March on a Friday afternoon, as we had to do, but Oakham has distance learning set up for the Monday morning. So that, in a sense, that's change one throughout that lockdown period, both one week at the end of the Easter term and throughout the summer term, ran a full program of lessons, activities where we could. But for me, the key thing was about connection and providing rhythm and routine and reassurance as well as learning. So I guess that's one thing. It's affected us in how we had to teach then. It's still affecting us in how we have to teach now because we're finding now a kind of blended approach where most pupils are in school, but if they have to self-isolate, then they need to access their lessons and teachers are teaching with some pupils in lessons and some pupils out. And if I'd said a year ago, to staff and colleagues, this is what you've got to do. I think they would have been really shocked and yet they're doing it and they're doing it incredibly well. So that's one thing. It has affected schools financially because we gave back, I think rightly so, we discounted our fees last term. And so that is a financial dent to the school. Of course, we like lots of other businesses benefited from furlough. And of course we were able to cut back costs, but nevertheless, that was still a significant financial adjustment that we had to make. And as we move forward, and currently, as I sort of look out the window at school running, yes, there are numerous health and safety issues. We're trying, obviously, really hard that staff keep their distance. I've just been to lunch and I've sat two metres away from colleagues. We have face masks on all around the campus, except when we're eating and teaching in lessons. There's markings everywhere. There's hand sanitizer gel everywhere you go. 
We've got pupils in bubbles. So if one person were to be diagnosed with COVID, then we can limit very quickly who else we need to self-isolate. It's been a huge, huge piece of work. And there are hundreds of things I haven't even listed there. No, but thanks for giving us a sort of snapshot of how it has affected schools and yourselves. And it hasn't been easy for you because we then need to talk about the A-levels fiasco that resulted in a lot of legal action against Ofqual. A couple of questions. Do you believe the government failed students? And does this open up schools like Oakham to legal action, even though the issue was with the government? If I can, Robert, just going to start with a slight sidestep and say something about governments and leadership. And I want to say, first of all, nothing I say is party political in any way. I do have a great deal of sympathy for anyone trying to run anything at the moment because we're all in a kind of chain of waiting for other people to make decisions. And I think there are a lot of decisions which are made in good faith. And it's not always easy to see the impact or the mistake you've made until that's happened. So I have a great deal of sympathy for the government in numerous ways for anyone trying to run anything. Going back to the A-level fiasco, I have sympathy there too for the government because how do you square the circle of being fair? And this word fairness, and I see it at the moment, even in the latest announcement about the fact that they're planning to go ahead with examinations in 2021, because this is the fairest thing to do. Fair is a very difficult word to quantify. I think that the timing and U-turns and uncertainty certainly creates a sense of chaos and fiasco. And I will say that in these quite difficult six months running a school, those were the most difficult four or five days around the A-level period, because things changed on this Thursday, I think they changed again on the Monday. And there's a lot of emotion from parents and pupils around results, a lot of people asking for answers. And actually, for the first time in my life, as an educator, I didn't feel as though I was the expert and I could be in control. And I found that quite difficult. That said, we had run a very robust process for calculating our CAGs, the center assessment grades. And actually, over time, as the dust settled, um, things worked out. I think in a sense, a lot was said about the algorithm. On a kind of macro level, the algorithm was trying to do the right thing. It was trying to create fairness, not just within a year, but between future years and past years. And it, it sort of did that. The problem is for a very, very large minority, and therefore a significant number of pupils and their families, it was extremely unfair and threw up a lot of really unfair and anomalous results. And that's really where the hue and cry came from. And I can understand why. But what a difficult situation for exam boards, for schools, for universities, and ultimately for government trying to square that. And as you say, it's very easy to point the finger and blame and, and hindsight is a wonderful thing. But do you think maybe government could have handled things differently? Yes, I think differently. I think the problem is, would it have been better? They talked about actually holding the exams last year. That's what Ofqual wanted to do. But I'm not sure that would have been practical. I think the, the late throwing in of mock examinations as a fallback on the one hand was quite clever, but on the other hand, just couldn't be policed. 
and therefore, in a sense, they were driven to going to the CAG situation, and they probably should have done that sooner. They probably should have sensed the direction of travel there, uh, and that's how I would have done it differently. Not that I necessarily think the CAGs are brilliant, but I think it was clear that was where they were going to end up. So why did we have to have a week of turbulence before that position was reached? Yeah, no, and thanks for sharing that. And, you know, we have to sort of move on because, as you mentioned, you are running a school, a, a business. And, and with that, there will be some examples, I'm sure, where you will have to seek some form of practical legal advice. So on the odd occasion that does happen, what are some of the areas you may need to look for legal support? Legal support is sort of part and parcel of, of any big organisation. We're a £28 million turnover business. So commercial and property would be one area that is uh, quite common. Policies, we'll sometimes have policies checked and contracts. I think when things get difficult, it can be perhaps around something like an exclusion. There might be an issue around equality. It could be a breach of contract by a parent and we're chasing fees in lieu. It might be something to do with GDPR. There's quite a range of issues, actually, that we would contact lawyers for. I'm always feeling it's a good year for me if I haven't from a kind of headmaster point of view, but certainly our COO would see working with lawyers as, as a regular part of his role. Yeah, no, and thanks again for sharing that. And I guess another big thing we need to talk about is the rise of social media and mobile phones and, and what impacts that's had on schools. What's your view on the use of mobile phones by pupils in schools and is it legal for schools to ban mobile phones whilst having them on school grounds? Do you know, I looked at the question and I thought I ought to be able to answer the last part of that, but perhaps I should push that back to you, Rob. I think legal might be the wrong phrase, but because parents sign up to a parent contract and therefore our sense of rules and expectations, if we have reasonable rules and expectations and we therefore decide that mobile phones should not be allowed on campus, and then I think we are within our rights. I say that with care because someone will be listening to this and say, you're not right, Mr. Price. And so I put that caveat in. In terms of the wider issue, I think if mobile technology has changed schools and it's changed teenagers and it's changed young people. I tend to take a middle ground approach, which is there's no point of my generation or older being Luddites and pretending mobile phones, social media are not part of life. They are. We have to, like everything else we do, try our best to be part of the education of the benefits, which are huge, and the risks, which are huge. I think there are links in my mind to teenage mental health. I think the pressure of living two lives for teenagers at times, the life in school, face-to-face, and another life that is constantly going on online is tiring. I think also produces bullying and unkindness with an ease that wouldn't have happened in a face-to-face society. And yet the connectivity, the use, the fun, the enjoyment of social media and mobile technology is undeniable and educationally hugely beneficial at times and therefore something we've got to embrace and keep working with. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And you mentioned their mental health and it's so, so important. Do you think mental health should legally become part of the UK curriculum? My gut answer is yes, but it's always guarded with 
we have to be careful of what we put in our curriculum. I could sit and list hundreds of important matters, pastoral and educational, that could legally be part of our curriculum. But we have to try and build a rounded curriculum that cares for boys and girls, that educates them, I guess, in body and mind. And I say in mind in the truest sense of the word, that we give them the skills, the intellectual, academic knowledge skills for them to progress, but also the emotional skills to progress as well. So mental health is built into all we're doing in schools at the moment. And something I think as a society, we are now much, much better at. And I, I hesitate to put a date on when we all started talking openly about mental health, but I would say it's within the last decade. And that's been a quite a positive, not quite, a, it's been a hugely positive change. Yeah, I agree. I think the more openness and more conversation we can have, the raise awareness and make it sort of normal, the better. Just want to touch on all things Brexit because we are seeing in, in the legal sector, we're speaking to lawyers and law firms day in, day out, and there's still a huge level of uncertainty around what the impacts might be. I mean, from an educational point of view, what impact do you see Brexit having on schools in the UK? I'm going to put it again in the I'm not sure bracket. I feel as someone who is in a global school with pupils coming from many different countries, I'm very keen to do that. And I wouldn't wish any sense that those boys and girls are less welcome in the UK than they were previously. But at the moment, we can't see any impact, actually. Our recruitment remains strong. Uh, we're keeping an eye to anything we need to do in terms of visas and anything else in January or beyond. But I think beyond that, Rob, it's business as usual at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's quite interesting to get your, your take on that. And um, let's talk a little bit more, you know, as people sort of go through their school journey, you have the option, I believe, at Oakham between the sort of IB diploma and A-levels. For those perhaps not so familiar, what's the, the key difference between the two? And I'm going to add in BTEC as well, actually, Rob. So we've got two BTECs, which are increasingly popular and I think occasionally misunderstood. The merit of BTEC is it has a real modular approach. But A-levels, I think, pretty well known and understood. Pick three or four A-levels and three really strong academic pillars. I think the interesting thing about A-levels is that some pupils will pick A-levels which are very interconnected, so maths, physics and chemistry. But actually, you can pick A-levels that are not so clearly connected. And I still think that's a strength of, of the A-level system. There is undoubtedly real depth of knowledge and depth of learning there. And I think that's hugely powerful. The IB diploma was not something I was hugely au okay with before I came here, but was certainly a small attraction of open to me. And without going to all the details of how IB is, is broken down and fantastic website for anyone wants to dig further, it's more of an interconnected philosophy with subjects at higher level and at standard level, uh, as well as extended projects and so forth. But for me, what has really grown on me with the IB is that sense of range and breadth of understanding. It forces a global aspect, but also looking along the line in terms of skills. I've been thinking about that quite a lot in terms of COVID. On the one hand, we want our 
great scientists, for example, and we talk a lot about the science at the moment, we want people digging really deep into things. But equally, we know that everything is interconnected. And when we're making decisions, there are economic elements, scientific elements, sort of human elements, political elements, and the ability to connect and see along a line and have a range. And for me, keeping breadth for as long as possible within school, I think is a real strength. And the IB provides that as well as being globally recognised. And then, of course, need to talk about, you know, how schools should generally measure their success. Should it be league tables, exam results, quality of facilities, pupil satisfaction, press image? What do you think should be the measurement of success for schools? I think that is the toughest question of all. I have often spoken, in fact, one of my props when I was doing Leavers talks at my previous school was a tape measure. And I would talk about the fact that a set of measurements will arrive in mid to late August, three or four letters, but that those three or four letters actually won't define your life and that you'll be measured in many other ways, sort of relationships that you build and what you're going to give back to life. So all of my gut and all of my heart says it can never be about league tables and exam results. But I think also I'd be a foolish head not to use them as part of it because they give a sense of where we are. Even facilities, it's always about facilitators, not facilities. So I would rather a really great teacher than a great sports hall, if you like. But I think facilities do provide an environment and a space for pupils to grow and to achieve what they want. And I think well-kept facilities are also a reflection of a well-kept school and a school that is proud of itself, even if it's not the biggest or the best. It, it's, it's the pride in the campus and the pride in the look and attention to detail. So let's dig a little bit deeper then. We talked yeah. about the, the sort of academics, the key differentiators in terms of what are on offer. We've talked about sort of league tables. So in terms of more in schools than pure academics, what should parents be thinking about when choosing schools for their children? I think you have to go back to basics as a parent, first of all. I mean, there are simple things about location. There are simple things. Do I want co-education or single sex? Do I want boarding or day or flexi boarding? And I think very quickly then you can narrow yourself down. But to come back to the essence of your question and the measurements, you mentioned pupil well-being and pupil satisfaction. And I think that is it. And it's the hardest thing to measure. But it's also what parents instinctively know. They know when their children are going into school happy and coming home happy. They know when they're getting good texts or the fact that they're not receiving texts means that life is good. And I always think about that program, One Born Every Minute. I don't know if you know that, Rob, the uh, set. Yeah, I've seen that. Yes, I have. So set in maternity wards around the country, a sort of fly-on-the-wall documentary. It's a program I have to be careful when I find my wife watching it. So I've really got four children. (laughs) There's a tear in her eye as a mum and dad hold their new baby. And actually, it's a really important moment. And I've said it to parents before. When we did hold our children in our arms, what did we look down and think? Because we didn't think, I hope you get 10 nines of GCSE and a captain of the Nepal team. We actually thought more about, I hope that you are happy. I hope that you're healthy. I hope that you make friends. I hope you can build relationships. I hope that you go on to make a difference. And I hope that I can be proud of you. 
And yeah, if you could get a job and move out of home in a timely fashion, that would be helpful as well. (laughs) Those are the measurements. And I think I say to parents when they visit, it's got to feel right for you. And if it feels right, it will work out well. Yeah, no, really, really well said. And you spoke at the sort of beginning of the podcast around privilege and just want to sort of talk around that a little bit more. How do you feel schools such as Oakham and lots of others can become more accessible to less affluent families? I think it's something we may touch on again, Rob. I have to say that the donations here, I'm not going to step away from the financial element the donations and financial support of really philanthropic former parents and former alumni for Oakham and elsewhere make a huge difference. We can, through our fee income, through our normal turnover, make something of a difference in terms of providing bursaries and in terms of allowing access. And it's important that we do. But, you know, within the overall picture of the business, the easiest way is when that finance comes outside and then we really can bring in boys and girls. We work with Royal Springboard Foundation to bring in boarders. We'd like to bring in local families as well. And I think that we can provide access to, I think it is a life-changing education. Well said. And so just digging a bit deeper, as you mentioned, what can private schools do to engage more with their local communities? And do you believe there should be laws requiring private schools to give back to communities? Almost a podcast in itself, Rob. And I think, again, touch on the word of privilege. There's no doubt that independent schools need to think very carefully about their place in education and their place in British society. And the word privilege, I think, is one it's hard to step away from. And we need to be aware of our privilege. For me, as long as that is recognised, and worn well by pupils and when they become former pupils, alumni, and they're out in the world working and earning and giving back. And if they do that well and they leave here knowing that that they really should be grateful and responsible with that privilege, then I think we've done a good job. In terms of legally requiring private schools to give back, of course, lots of talk around charitable status, and there has been for a long time and there will be for a long time to come. There isn't a one-size-fits-all, and I think that often can be frustrating for the independent sector that we're all very different, different in our locations, different in our resources, and different within the local communities in which we sit. Oakham School sits within a small market town of Oakham, and that does allow us to do certain things. And my predecessor, the school, worked really hard in the setting up of Harrington, which is now a really thriving sixth-form college. There are 101 ways in which we're subtly interconnected and give back to the community, uh, but that will change from school to school. And I think one of the slight sadnesses for me in the last 20 years or so has been, I think, that schools have always given back to their local community and done so because that was in the DNA and that was what they always wanted to do. And now it looks like it's happening at times because we're required to do so. And that's a shame. That's a shame because it, I think it was happening anyway, and I think it will continue to do so. No, and I, I agree with you there, Henry. It's a really, really sort of valid point. And as we look to sort of wrap up, just a sort of couple of questions. If people have had this you know, privileged 
education. We've talked about it there about giving back. But what are some of the ways maybe to give some people some ideas? You know, it's not necessarily all about sort of monetary ways of giving back. Are there other things maybe alumni should be thinking about or could do that may not be aware of how they can add value and give back to their respective schools? Yeah, so absolutely. Putting finance to one side. I do think one of the ways in which alumni give back without even noticing is by being great alumni, by being successful in their own fields. So continuing a a really sort of proud badge and ethos and values of what Oakham or another school has taken with them. So if you're succeeding, and I don't just mean succeeding in a sort of grand way, but if you're succeeding in life, actually, then you're providing ongoing support for the school because you're taking that good name with you. And I think linked to that then is word of mouth. I really encourage alumni OOs in this case you know, to stay connected and to stay up to date with the school so that even if you're not at a stage where you have children or you, you wouldn't send them here, but nevertheless, you can talk positively about the school to those who might be interested and who might think, well, I'm moving out of London and where am I? Should I relocate to? Well, you know, I went to Oakham. It's a great place. Have a look. And that word of mouth is really important. And I think finally, The sort of things that you've done, Rob, and hundreds of other OOs do, coming back, giving talks, mentoring, advice to our current pupils and indeed current headmasters and others, that sort of sense of friendship is still really valuable. And particularly when OOs bring in expertise from a very different sphere of life. Some of my best conversations, both as head here and in my previous school, have come from alumni at a kind of social event. And after an hour of just listening to them talk about their business and their experience, I'm all the wiser. I'm just a slightly better head for having spoken to them. Yeah. And again, I think you've put that really, really well, Henry. And I know I've asked a lot of interesting, challenging, very sort of big questions and probably to end on a big question as well. Where do you see the education sector in the next 10 years heading? Fewer examinations. I think possibly post-A-level applications to university. I think the interesting thing is this, how much lockdown has fast-tracked the use of technology in teaching. I certainly still believe a good teacher in the classroom face-to-face is going to remain a pillar of good education for a long time to come. But I do see now that Technology should be able to speed and support teachers as well as pupils better. And staff have really had to fast track both at Oakham and I'm sure in hundreds and hundreds of other schools across the land uh, how they use technology. There's a bit of rebalancing of that still to come, but I think that's been a positive. So more technology, fewer examinations, still a real sense of pastoral care, and the looking after teenagers. I think we'll see a bit more science around good pastoral care and value of, of co-curriculum. Because you talked about league tables and we can sort of measure exam results, but I think we, we're getting better at measuring well-being. We're getting better at measuring the immeasurable. That sounds like an odd phrase, but I think it's true. Um, I think that's really exciting. I think we're going to see more collaboration within schools. We're already seeing big multi-academy trusts. Um, We do see the independent sector in partnership in all sorts of ways. I think we're going to see more partnership. And the question for me, and and I really hope, Rob, is that we're a bit disconnected globally at the moment, but I hope that global connection remains because 
education isn't something that's prevalent just to the UK. Education is education and we need to keep sharing education right across society and right across the world. I couldn't agree more. And as I say, I think it's going to be a very exciting time ahead for the education sector. So I'd just like to say an absolute massive thank you, Henry, for coming on the show. As a fellow OO 2004, showing my age a little bit, it's been a real pleasure having you on. I'm wishing you and everyone involved in Oakham lots of continued success. But for now, over and out.